Let me say uh, good afternoon and welcome, particularly if we haven't met before, if this is your first time with us. My name is Mitch Spence. I'm one of the uh, elders here at uh, Living Hope Church. And it's great to uh, see everyone. It's great to have a few uh, faces back who've been traveling and that kind of thing. And uh, welcome to a few uh, new students that I can see uh, amongst us. I hope exams uh, are going well, or maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that. Uh, who knows? But um, welcome. Uh, you join us at the end of a, a four-week series thinking about this uh, this. A doctrine, this topic, this idea of being uh, united to Christ. And when we began this series four weeks ago, we said, didn't we, that we're going, to, we're going to channel our inner Puritan as we slowed down and as we zoomed in and as we dwelt on and um, wallowed in these wonderful truths. Puritans were 16th and 17th century pastors and theolo- theologians who had a knack for, um, for picking up just, just one verse one idea, one concept, and kind of holding it up to the light and looking at it glisten and shine from every possible angle and just dwelling on the depths of riches and wisdom and sheer glory contained in one verse, one idea, one concept. Now I am aware that at times in the last few weeks maybe it's felt less like your pastor has brought 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 out into the light. And more like he's thrown them in the dark corner of a closet somewhere. I I get that. And during moments of personal reflection, I suppose, over the last few weeks, I recognize that I certainly could have been clearer at various points over the last few weeks. You know, as a preacher, when we plan out a series, we always envision how we see that series going. We always have an idea of how we see it playing out. And no sooner have you begun to preach then a gap begins to creep into where you felt like you were heading and where you actually are as a a congregation. Uh, You would uh, envisage yourself marvelously leading your people in one direction, only to find that as you began preaching, uh, you may be headed in a slightly different direction. And so bear with me is is the plea. Uh, I'm all too aware of my own shortcomings as as a preacher. I continue working hard to sharpen the gifts that the Lord has given me uh, for the benefit of this uh, whole church. But bear with me. Thankfully, however, through his word and by his spirit, the Lord has us exactly where he intended to lead us this afternoon. He has us exactly where he wants us. And so as always, let's turn to him and ask for his help this afternoon as we come to this final sermon, uh, thinking about union with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, you tell us in your word that we as humanity, as human beings, we are, we are spiritually deaf to your words. We are spiritually blind to your glorious truths. We, we need your help by your spirits to understand, to know, to grasp, to see. And so, Father, we ask this afternoon that, as always, you would speak to us through your words and by your spirit. You would open our eyes to see more of who Christ is. You would open our ears to hear the gospel and so to respond rightly in him. And so to you, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to your power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As always, we're going to read the passage before us, but today we're going to go a little bit further back. We're going to go to verse 26 in 1 Corinthians. And so hopefully this will come up on the screen next to me. If you have a Bible, why not turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse uh, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I said, if you found yourself uh, wrestling with uh, the sermons these last few weeks, uh, struggling to grasp the full weight of what's being uh, said about us being in Christ, fighting to follow the journey that we've uh, been on, that's not necessarily uh, all down to me and my failings. Because speaking of our union with Christ by faith is not a simple thing. It's not an easy task. And so to help, often the Bible will turn to similes and metaphors and imagery to describe what it means to be in Christ, to help us grasp hold of something concrete and, and tangible, something to sink our teeth into and to take away with us, if you like. But even then, there is no one single image that says it all. In fact, the sheer number of metaphors and the range and variety of, of imager, images tell us that this is a... This is a a deep concept, explaining union with Christ, is, is not a straightforward thing. It's a bit like two people who are joined together in marriage, two who become one. Yes, it's a, it's a bit like that. But it's also a bit like a branch that's engrafted back into a vine that now becomes one living thing. Yes, but it's also a bit like a, a head that's joined to a body and how the, the head and the body are now one a thing. Yes, but then again, it's also a bit like bricks built upon a, a foundation, a cornerstone. It's static, but it's also dynamic. It's not one or the other, it's both and. It carries legal and forensic realities. And yet, and yet it also carries kind of regenerative and organic realities. It's actual and real. And yet it's spiritual and mystical. It's complex and it's deep. And so it requires us... It requires us digging out our childlike imaginations and recovering that sense of uh, adventure, a spirit of adventure in our walk of faith. Because of, as, as B.F. Westcott said, if once we realize what these words, we are in Christ, mean, we shall know that beneath the surface of life lie depths which we cannot fathom, full alike of, full alike of mystery and hope. Lewis Smedes adds, it's a whole new reality. It's not a reality we we can contain in our heads, but one that contains us and that underwrites a whole new way of living in an enchanted world. And by an enchanted world, we mean what poet Gerard Manley Hopkins refers to when he writes, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, full alike of mystery and, and hope. That sounds like epic adventure. A whole new reality, living in an enchanted world, a world of uh, the grandeur of God. That's begging us not to be dull and so nearsighted, but to, to feed our imaginations, to look beneath the surface of life, to look past the superficial, to something deeper, something more profound, to, to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, opened, to see and know that in Christ... In Christ, we participate in heavenly realities. 
whilst at the very same time we walk the, the ground of this earth. That's not an easy uh, thing. Rankin Wilborn writes, we've heard from him a few times, Union with Christ tells us that there are extraordinary depths running just below the surface of our lives. It tells us that the most important things about our lives cannot be seen or touched with our senses. Union with Christ is an enchanted reality. And in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, we stumbled across a, a hidden door, as I've said, a gateway, a portal, if you like, to this enchanted reality, to this this whole new world. It's a little bit like we're in a C.S. Lewis novel in the Chronicles of Narnia, or for maybe you, you younger folk, uh, something like uh, the Avenger films, right? And as we stumbled upon this hidden doorway or this portal, so we, so we fell into a whole new world, a multi-dimensional world, a little bit like Narnia, a little bit like Asgard, except that it's neither. We've stumbled through the doorway of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, and the new world that we fell into, the new world that we've been exploring these last few weeks is called In Christ. As you pick yourself up and kind of dust yourself off, having fallen over into this new world, if you were able to ask a passerby, excuse me, sorry, where am I? They would reply, well, you are in Christ, of course. Slightly amused and a little bit confused, you get out your phone and open Google Maps to find your location. And Google Maps would also tell you that you were in Christ. This is the land. This is the enchanted reality that we've been exploring over the last few weeks. And as we've wandered around this reality, this world, so we've begun to notice some pretty significant, pretty important uh, landmarks. Righteousness is there. Being made right with God is in this land. Sanctification is there. The process of growing in godliness exists in this land. Redemption is there. Glorification is there. Adoption is there. Coming into the family of God exists in this land. In fact, the whole of salvation is present in this land. But here's the crazy thing about this land. Everything in this land is free. There is not a world that exists like this. And not free like, okay, you have to pay RTGS, like, you know, we, that we kind of consider that free these days. No, no, free. Freely given. It is yours by coming into this land. As, as you step into this land, so you are given it all. It all becomes yours in this land we've called in Christ. But more than that, the moment you step into this land, the moment you step into being in Christ, you never leave. It is a realm, it is a place that by faith you never leave. You search for the door, you look for it, you try to get out, but you can't. Because you have been united to Christ. You are in him, now and forever. By the work of his spirit, he has bound you to himself, riveted you to himself. And so what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to explore, then what does it look like to live in this reality, to live in this place, to, to live our lives as if we are now in Christ? 
to walk and roam this earth as those who are now in Christ. And so whilst it is an enchanted reality, the Bible also says that it is a grounded reality. Rankin Wilborn, he, he continues, having just said that this is an enchanted reality, he goes on to say, I hope to show you that nothing is more practical to living your faith than your union with Christ. Nothing is more practical to living your faith than union with Christ. It may be an enchanted reality, but it is a grounded reality. It informs and it shapes and it has a bearing on the, the mundane moments of everyday life. Making your coffee in the morning. But more than that, it's also the, the thread that runs through the entirety of your life, through the extraordinary, extraordinary experience of, of life itself. But even more than that, union with Christ is the very context in which we live our lives. It's how we live life itself. We live in Christ, in Him. It's like someone who's, who's been wandering around a, a desert for days, are lost, are badly sunburnt, are blistered lips. They're dusty, they're dehydrated, they're semi-delusional. And just when all seemed lost, life all but drained from their, their frail bodies, out of nowhere they stumble upon a, upon a, stri- a spring. And they have no energy to, to run at that point. This is not Hollywood, right? They've got no energy to run. No thought of, of bending down to, to kind of scoop up pitiful handfuls of water. No, they, their whole body just falls. They, they collapse in relief and euphoria. And the very moment that, that their body hits the spring, the water, so life begins to enter their bodies again. Outside the spring, they were dead. Outside the spring, everything is dead. But in the spring is life. In the spring, they live. Or as... Uh, Acts 17, 28 puts it, In Him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. It's in Christ that we live. And so our task this afternoon, our, our task is to, is to land this plane, to find in Christ all that we need for today and tomorrow, to see that nothing is more practical to living the Christian life than union with Christ. And so first, um, let's agree, let's agree this afternoon that we're not even going to call it the Christian life any longer. But rather, we're going to start owning the reality that we are now those who live in Christ. That may seem like a, a pretty small and petty distinction. I know, I get that. But I think it is an important one. Because it reminds us, doesn't, doesn't it, that, that, that we go about our lives not as people who are alone, but that in each and every moment we are united to Christ and we're united to all of Him. Whatever the situation, in Christ, we find our, our right standing before God and we also find a power and an ability to live for God. That this past week, in, in your job, uh, on campus, on the farm, at home, working, playing, exercising, married or single, we weren't alone. We weren't isolated individuals who, who were kind of going about our own business because, because we were living in Christ. We were united to Him by faith. We were doing life. I hate that expression, but we were doing life. <laughs> Right? The verb of, of, of live is, is living. We were living in Christ. Right? We were living our lives, all the while being in Him. And when you came here this afternoon, we came here, didn't we? We came in Christ. 
and you're sitting there right now and you are in Christ and later this afternoon that you're going to leave and go out into the world as women, as men who are going out into the world in Christ. Union with Christ is a grounded reality which encompasses all of life, every moment. Uh, uh, Every moment of our very being is grounded in Christ, past, present, and future. And so there are three, um, that's three, three implications, I think, of this reality for us this afternoon. First, uh, living in Christ is the grounds for boasting in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. These two verses, uh, verses 30 and 31, they form the climax of Paul's opening uh, chapter to the church in Corinth. And he calls them, he calls them to a, a lifelong pursuit of boasting in Christ, to taking pride in the Lord, to rejoicing in him, to kind of glorying in him, if you like. And this call to boast in Christ, I think, should resonate with us more than I think it actually does. Because we live in a, in a cultural moment where boasting in ourselves is the way of life that we all just know very, very well. We're just so comfortable with it. So comfortable that I think we don't even recognize we're doing it half the time. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, WhatsApp statuses, they're all basically tools, aren't they? They're tools that feed our fetish of boasting in ourselves and exalting ourselves. Here's an example to my shame just this morning. Mother's Day, I got up nice and early, made pancakes and coffee for Jess while she slept in bed. And I, pick, I took a, a picture of my beautiful creation. <laughs> and I sent it to our two families. And what was the real purpose of me doing that? It was to boast of myself, wasn't it? Look at my amazing creation. Yes, partly to shame the other men in my family, that, that's true. But it was to exalt myself, wasn't it? I did for no other reason. It wasn't exalting Jess. It was to boast of myself, to exalt myself, to bring glory to myself. And we do this all the time, don't we? This is, this is, this is where we live. This is how we live. This is the kind of life that we all live. We live a life of boasting in ourselves, exalting and glorying in ourselves, don't we? It might not be straightforward, sure, it might be a backhanded way, but underneath it all, if we're honest with ourselves, the general flow of our lives, the dominant current is towards our own exaltation. We are beings who just love, who love to boast in ourselves. But that's the exact opposite of what Paul is calling us to here in 1 Corinthians 1, 13, 31, isn't it? You see that quote in verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Well, where is that written? Well, it's written in Jeremiah 9, 24, which was read for us a little bit earlier by Joram. Let me read from verse 23 very quickly of Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Part of the problem what's going on in Israel's day around this uh, time is that Israel are boasting in themselves and not following the, the way of the Lord. 
And the Lord, as we heard in that reading, basically says he is going to tear his people apart for not following after him. And yet they boast in their own wisdom. They boast in their own might. No one can do that. We're strong. They boast in their own wealth and their own riches. And I think the whole reason that Paul quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians, why he takes uh, the the quote from uh, Jeremiah 9 and brings it all the way through to 1 Corinthians, is because he's saying that we don't come to know God by our own wisdom. It's not our intellectual prowess that gives us an advantage in understanding God. We don't, we don't win our salvation by our own works and our own back. We, we certainly don't come to buy God's favor with our wealth. And I think that is a, an incredibly encouraging reality. That the gospel, is, the gospel does not favor the wise, the strong, and the rich. And so Paul is reminding the, the, the church at, at Corinth that we owe everything. We owe everything to God. That our very existence as the people of God is all down to his gracious work in us and for us. Just a few verses earlier, and we had these read for us as well, in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul reminds the Corinthians, and he reminds us, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame, what, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul here is effectively calling us weak and foolish, despised and lowly. Apart from Christ, he says that that you were nobody. We were nobody. We had no hope in the world. We were lowly and despised. And yet in his kindness, God chose us. He chose us when nobody would. We are the kids who are standing on the side as the two teams get separated and everyone else gets chosen, but we don't. And yet God chose us the weak and the foolish. And he brought us out of ourselves and into Christ. And in Christ, he has given us everything. In Christ, we know God. In Christ, we experience his love. In Christ, we see his justice. In Christ, we find righteousness and sanctification, everything that we need for this life and the next. In Christ, we are redeemed. And so apart from Christ, we have nothing, nothing to boast in at all. But in Christ, in Christ, we have every reason to boast. And so as John Piper says, he says, only boast, our only boast is Jesus Christ. It is a single idea, a single goal, a single passion. Only boast in Christ. Let this be your single passion, your single boast, and joy and exaltation. Let the one thing that you love, the one thing that you cherish, the one thing that you rejoice in and exult in uh, over and over, be Christ and being found in him. Well, second, living in Christ is the grounds for glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I'm not sure there's a more wonderful summary of the Christian life than the first question and answer couplets to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, Westminster, sorry, Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. The question says, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Humanity's highest calling in life, our, our greatest purpose is to bring glory to God in all that we do and to find in him all of our joy forever. This is our our reason for for being, our ultimate telos or end, the purpose for which we were made, our greatest joy and God's greatest glory are intrinsically wrapped up together. 
And it may sound to you as if those are two very different things, two distinct acts. One, glorifying God, and the other, enjoying Him. As if right now, going to church, that's an act of glorifying God. Making it to Bible study, there's another act of glorifying God in the week. I'm not jumping in the queue. I'm not paying the bribe. Not turning to porn. I'm not gossiping. Tithing, yes, tithing is definitely, that is an act of glorifying God. No one does that joyfully. Right? And then there's this, this other aspect of enjoying Him. That's a whole different thing. Uh, having my de- devotion on Monday morning, that's an act of enjoying Him. Or at least desperately trying to enjoy Him anyway. Or maybe it's going for a run with some elevation tracks pumping through the airpods, right? This is me enjoying God. Or sitting on top of a mountain, watching the sunrise, having a, a cup of coffee in the morning. That is me enjoying God in the context of his creation. But as far as the Bible is concerned, those aren't two separate things. They are the, the same. They're the one act of glorifying God and enjoying him. It constitutes the whole of the Christian life. Not two things, but one. Jonathan Edwards, the, the great American theologian of the 18th century, he, he put it this way. He said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Our rejoicing in God is what brings him glory. Or maybe you're more familiar with one of Edwards' uh, students, again, John Piper and his famous line, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But how exactly do we go about glorifying God and enjoying him forever? What is the Christian life? What does being in Christ actually entail? What does it involve? Well, that brings us to our third and final uh, implication. Daily uh, walking in faith and repentance. Living in Christ is the grounds for daily walking in faith and repentance. Historically, at least, the, the church, the, the world over, has, has framed the Christian life in terms of walking in faith and repentance each and every day. The, the one singular act of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is that one singular act of living by faith and repentance from beginning to end, each and every moment of every day. The way we begin the Christian life is the way that we continue in the Christian life. Again, turning to Rankin Wilburn, he says that these two steps of faith and repentance are the basic movement of the Christian life. They're not only how we begin the Christian life, they're also the mindset, the disposition with which we live our entire life in Christ. God's glory... And our joy, realized in lifelong, daily, daily expressing our faith and repentance in Christ. When you're battling to prioritize prayer in the busyness of life, preach the gospel to yourself in that moment and turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Faith I am in Christ, and so I can rest in his finished work on the cross. I am not condemned because I am struggling to pray. In fact, I am right with God, adopted into his family. I am a child of God because of Christ's perfect prayer life. And so in him I am loved, I am cherished, I am welcomed, I am accepted. In Christ we can We can rest in that extravagant grace. Come to him in faith. But in Christ we can also walk in repentance. I'm in Christ. 
And in him, I have all the resources necessary. I have his power at work in me. In Christ, I have the ability to grieve my prayerlessness, to hate sin, and to turn from them, and instead to turn to God, and to purpose and strive to walk in Christ. In Christ, we can, we can press on, we can pursue that radical discipleship. Faith and repentance. When we're feeling ashamed of having turned to pornography again, in that moment, turn to Christ and preach the gospel to yourself. Faith, I am in Christ. His finished work on the cross cleanses me and washes me clean. I am right with God. I am loved by God. I am cherished by Him. I am one of His children. And when He looks at me, He doesn't see my dirt and my filth. He sees Christ and His perfect work on the cross. But in Christ, we can also walk in repentance. We can come to Him and find all that we need to say sorry to turn away from that idol, to turn to God and to strive and to purpose and to try and walk in godliness. Why? Because we have Christ's act of obedience at work in us, his strength, his power, helping us to make just one decision, one choice, one act in that day, to say no to that and turn to him. And in that we should rejoice. Faith and repentance are the, the two pedals of a bicycle. To get going forward, you need to push down on both. And yes, we don't rest in our repentance. That's not what makes us right with God. We come to God by faith. But in Him, we are also able to pursue this, this life of radical discipleship. When you're feeling as if God is distant, as if He hasn't um, been around for a while, as if he hasn't heard your cries. In that moment, preach the gospel to ourselves. I am in Christ. By faith, I have been bound to him. He has bound me to himself and he will never leave me. I'm able to exercise that faith and trust and know that he is for me, that he is with me, that he will never leave me. But at the same time, I'm, I'm able to come to him in repentance and find in him the strength, the strength to, to look at my situation and not conclude that he is somehow far off because I'm going through this, but to know that he is with me. I can find in him the strength to come to God and say, I'm struggling with this, and it makes me feel as if you don't care. But I can look back to the cross and know that you do, and so help me, give me strength to lift my eyes from my situation and to know that you are with me and that you care for me. In that moment where we find ourselves consumed by some form of idolatry, be it this or that or whatever, money, work, sex. In that moment, we can preach the gospel to ourselves, can't we? I am in Christ. I am with him. He is with me. He is not far off. He has united himself to me. And his work, his perfect work on the cross has given me everything anyway. I don't need to chase after money because I've been given it all. I don't need to give myself to work because that work has been done for me. Come to Christ and, and in faith, trust in his work and rest in his extravagant grace. But at the same time, at the same time, we can lean into who he is and all that he is. And we can repent of that idolatry. We can turn away from it. We can ask for his strength, 
his power, his godliness to be at work in us, helping us. And so it is in Christ that our lives can be spent glorifying and enjoying him forever as we walk in faith and repentance. In Christ, we can boast in the Lord. In Christ, we can glorify and enjoy him forever. In Christ, we can walk in daily faith and repentance. So let me pray for us as we close. Our Father in heaven, as we come to the end of uh, four weeks in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, Father, we pray that your spirit is at work in us by your power, according to your will for your purposes. Father, we confess that it's not been uh, an easy time uh, wrestling with these wonderful truths of being in Christ. And yet we pray, Father, that we are being stretched, that we are being asked to use our imagination, that we are, to be, we are being asked to, to see a whole new reality, a whole new way of life in Christ. Father, we pray that as that happens, as you reveal these things to our hearts, so, Father, we pray that we are those who go out into the world with a renewed vigor for living for you, a renewed vigor given the the reality of who we are in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we would be those who are exercising daily this, this faith and repentance, coming to Jesus, coming to him, resting in his extravagant grace, trusting in and pursuing radical discipleship, given all that we have in him for your glory and for our joy. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.